Man, get your Bibles out with me today. I'm so excited to uh, just be celebrating with you on Palm Sunday. Have our kids down here singing and quoting the Word of God to us today. And I want to take a few moments to do the absolute most important thing that we can do as the church on a Sunday. And that's to open up this book and let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and lives. So I want to invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament. We're going to go to chapter 10. You know, I read about a church in Kansas City that had this as their slogan. Wake up, sing up, preach up, pray up, and pay up. But never give up or let up or back up or shut up until the cause of Christ in this church and in the world is built up. I don't know if they made the members, members memorize that or not, but I liked it. It's important to be a part of the local church. It's important. Somebody asked the question one time. They said, well, can you be a Christian without joining a church? And the answer is yes, it's possible. But it's something like being a student that doesn't go to school. Or a soldier that doesn't join an army. Or a citizen that doesn't pay taxes or vote. It's kind of like... Being a salesman with no customers or a businessman on a deserted island. You can be a church, or you can be a Christian without being a church member, but it's kind of like being a football player without a team or a politician who's a hermit or a bee without a hive. It's not the way it was intended to be. God's called us to be in the church, He's called us to be a part of the family of God. You know, if absence makes the heart grow fonder, there's some people that really love the church. (laughs) I heard about one guy that said, uh, bragging about, you know, how he's not really a part of the church. Uh, He said he was sprinkled with water the first time. Now, I can't even remember the joke. Now, hold on a second. I better get back to my notes. See, that's that's the only thing worse than preacher jokes are ones that you can't even remember. How did it go? I don't remember. You you can look that one up. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Apparently wasn't that funny the first time. I didn't remember it. Are you there? Hebrews 10. Some of y'all are trying to make up a joke now. You're like, you sprinkle the first time. Just let it go. I want to tell you about some things that we have the ability to do as the people of God. Because we're in the church. Because of what Jesus has done for us. And, and, and I want to just jump right to my, my points. I'm going to skip over a lot of things. Because I really just want you to get the heart of four, four statements that we have in Hebrews chapter 10. But just to give you a little groundwork and a little backstory, let me tell you this. The book of Hebrews uh, is really a, a revelation of the Old Testament. It's been said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so when we read in the Old Testament about the priests bringing the sacrifices to the altar and putting the incense on the altar and sprinkling blood on this and and uh, and and putting ashes on that and we read all that stuff and you kind of go what is this all about maybe you've done that before you tried to read the bible and you came away with this thought of 
this doesn't really even apply to my life. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. When you get over into the New Testament, all of a sudden we begin to see the manifestation of the reality of what was just types and shadows. All of those things in the Old Testament point to the substance, which is Christ and the church. And so the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And maybe no book in the New Testament does a greater job of that than the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, I'm going to give you one guess what audience that was written to. Hebrews, yes, it was written to Hebrew people. (laughs) Sprinkles. It was written to Hebrew people. And so these people have a way of looking at their relationship with God. They look at it through the lens of the Old Testament. And so all the things we read about the way that they approached God, the tabernacle, the temple, the way all that stuff was put together, that was the way they saw their relationship with God. So the goal of the book of Hebrews is to communicate one thing, that Jesus is better than all of those types and shadows. Jesus is a better high priest than the high priest that would go for you and, first of all, ask God to uh, cleanse him of his sins so that he would then be qualified to ask God to cleanse you of your sins. Jesus is a better high priest than that because he was sinless. He never had to ask forgiveness of his own sins. Hebrews communicates to us that Jesus is a better sacrificial lamb than the lamb that they used to bring to the temple in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, they would, in the old order, the old covenant, they would bring the lamb and they would sacrifice it on the altar, but it never actually brought forgiveness of sins. In fact, it brought as much of an awareness of sin as anything, because they knew that we're going to have to do this again next year, because all this does is cover our sin. It bides us time from the judgment of God. And so we're going to come back next year. We're going to do it again. But Jesus, Hebrews says, is a better sacrifice. He's the lamb slain once and for all. He never has to go back and sacrifice his life on the cross for us again. He never has to shed his blood again. It's a finished work. Hebrews tells us that that what we have in Jesus is a better temple. Have you ever read through the Old Testament and got really bored with all the details of how long the curtains had to be and and how many cubits this was and what's a cubit and how long that is? And, And Moses had very specific instructions from God on how to create all those things. The reason that it was so specific is because it was a model. It was a type. But the true temple is in heaven. And so Jesus doesn't have to go behind the veil of a curtain and and burn incense and make a sacrifice. He goes before the very Father in heaven. We have a better covenant in Jesus. That's what the new covenant is. It's a better covenant. We have a better way of salvation. Jesus established that for us. And because we have a better way of approaching God, I want you to know that the church is better today. The church is better than any other institution that's out there. The church is better than being Democrat or Republican. It's better to be a part of the church than it is to even be American or or to be any other nationality or or group that you might, uh, or a governmental system that that you might want to be a part of. All those things are going to cease. But God's kingdom, the church, is going to reign forever. Jesus said this, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not 
overcome it. That was a phrase that was familiar uh, to Jewish people. The gates of Hades, it just meant death. So he was saying, death itself is not even going to overcome the church. The church is, we, we can read about the church in Revelation. We can read about the church at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church will exist and thrive long after this world is burned up with a fervent heat. We have an incredible opportunity to be a part of the body of Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer begins to communicate the privileges that we have. I want to begin in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Let me just stop there. I'm not going to stay long, but in the, in the old covenant, there was a curtain, the veil, that kept everyone out of that place where God's presence was. And so when Jesus died on the cross, as he was suspended there between heaven and earth, the Bible says in that same moment when Jesus cried out, it is finished. The work was done. That the thing that kept us out, that allowed just a certain group of people to go in occasionally, that veil was ripped. And it wasn't ripped from the bottom up because it was done by, uh, uh, you know, the priest or by a religious institution. It was ripped from the top down. A curtain that theologians tell us was layered three feet deep. Three feet thick. It was torn from the top down. And in an incredible... uh, metaphorical statement god says the veil has been ripped you have access now and this verse says that we don't have access through a curtain in an earthly temple we have access through the veil that is the curtain of jesus own body it's a gruesome image to picture in your mind but the bible says that jesus at the whipping post his flesh hung like ribbons like a curtain He became our entryway into the very presence of God. And he goes on to say this in verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus. We have a a priest over the house of God. Here's what we should do. He says in verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus made a way for us through a better covenant. And I love the church today because of what this better covenant gives us the opportunity to do. We have access today. I want to tell you four things that we can do Because of this better covenant. As the church, we can reach, first of all, upward to God in worship. Everybody say, we can reach upward. Look at verse 22 again. It says, let us draw near to God. I love the fact that we can come together to church on a Sunday morning and we can do just that. We've done it today. We draw near to God. How does it happen? The Bible tells us in Psalm 104. Psalm 100 and and verse 4. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and come into his courts 
with praise. That, that's why we begin our service that way, by the way. It's not just liturgy or church tradition. The Bible says the way we move in, the way we reach upward for God is through thanksgiving and praise. And so we began our service today declaring what a happy day it was that he washed our sins away. Gratitude and thanksgiving, saying, God, thank you for you have saved me. And what happened in that moment is the spirit of God began to draw us in. He began to just bring us right in. I don't know what you came in here today thinking about. I don't know if you were distracted. I don't know if you were fussing at the kids on the way in and giving them last minute death threats before they get on the stage this morning. I, I don't know if I'm the only one that's ever done that on my way to church. But then I get here. Then I get in the house of the Lord. And the praises go up. And the presence of God comes down. And we have this incredible opportunity in the church, to reach upward to God in worship. The Bible says in Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. You ought to be glad to go to church. You ought to be glad to go to church. There's something that happens when we come together as the church that you just can't accomplish any other way. You want a Bible word this morning? Let me, give, let me give you a Bible word. The word is ecclesia or ecclesia. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. Now that's probably not a word you've used lately. But I want to tell you, there's no such thing as a Christian who's not a part of the church. There's just not. Now there's a lot of people that are genuinely saved that have greatly misunderstood the value of the church. I'm not saying if a person doesn't show up at church, they're not saved. I'm just saying whether you attend or not, you can't truly be saved and not be a part of the church. God didn't just make you sons and daughters. He made you brothers and sisters. You're in the family. I know a lot of siblings would like to choose brothers and sisters, but you don't get that option. You're in the family. And this word, ecclesia, is a word that that the Lord uses. It was actually a common word in that day that just meant a gathering of people. It didn't have to be a spiritual thing. It could be for political uh, reason. It could be for a food fight in the cafeteria. Oh, ecclesia, over there, ecclesia. Everybody's just gathering together. But Jesus gave it substance. And so did the apostles. When, when they talked about this word, they gave substance to it because they used it to describe the community of Christians as a distinct worshiping fellowship they gave it a new definition and that significance of that term is tremendous for us because jesus expects that his followers he expects that believers are going to be the ecclesia they're going to come together and they're going to come together for the distinct purpose of worship and fellowship the apostles when they begin to spread the gospel they didn't just go out uh, as, as missionaries and, and tell people or evangelists and tell people about Jesus and, and lead people to Christ. They went out as apostles and they established churches. They planted churches because they had this core understanding that we're not just called to know Jesus. We're called to be a part of the family of God. We're called to come together as the body of Christ. And so they planted churches from place to place and they didn't look like this. In that first century, they met in people's homes. 
But just because they met in homes, it doesn't mean it was individual family units or, or single adults just kind of doing their own thing by themselves. Going, well, I'm, I'm the church in my house. No, they came together as a community and they, they met at a location, whether it was a, a church campus like this or somebody's home. And they came for the purpose of fellowship and worship. Paul the Apostle, he addressed this attitude of isolation because we're not the first generation to think that we can love Jesus and we can be on our way to heaven and we just don't want anything to do with the church. Paul the Apostle dealt with it. There were people that, there was a lot of disorder in the church in Corinth and and one of the issues that he dealt with was people saying to other believers, you know, I I just really don't, I don't really need them. I mean, I'm good. I I know the Lord. I've got a relationship with God. I, I just don't really need them. And there's a lot of people that feel that way about the church. And they're missing the blessing and the plan of God. Here's what Paul wrote. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here's what he wrote to the church. He said, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. See, he said, we are the body of Christ. And so he went on to say, the head cannot say to the feet, I do not need you. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. He went on to say, if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. So, hear me today. If we're going to worship The way that Jesus said God is looking for worshipers in John 4. He said worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. If we're going to be that kind of a church and worship according to God's prescribed plan, then we have to do it in the context of community. Now, I should get more amens because you're actually at church in community this morning. So, amen. I totally agree with that. I mean, this is not like a confrontation at home. Like, we're here. We're doing it. It's happening right now. And it's biblical, and that's what you should know. This isn't just something that we we should do because of a certain season of the year. It's biblical that we come together, that we worship in community. That's not to say that we don't have a personal, private devotion with God. Absolutely, there are elements of our relationship with God that have to begin and go beyond our corporate gatherings. But not to the exclusion of them. We need the body of Christ. And there's something powerful that happens when we all come together and we all lift up holy hands and we all lift up our voices. We worship God. The Bible says that when we come together, God commands his blessing in that place. How good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity, Psalms 133 says. And the third verse says that's the place where the Lord commands his blessing. The glory of God falls here the favor of god falls here you might have had the worst week of your life but you know what you're favored because you're standing in the house of the lord with the people of god and as they worship and as they praise god's not shooting down favor and blessing like darts on people no he's opening up the windows of heaven he's pouring out his presence you get wet too it gets on all of us when we come together and we worship we get to reach up to god Look with me quickly at the second half of that verse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. The second half says, 
having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I won't go back into the history, but again, this is written to Hebrew people. They totally understood this, that, that our hearts have been sprinkled to cleanse us of a guilty conscience. Now, just turn one page back. I want to show you something. Hebrews 9 tells us something about the way that they would sprinkle the altar with blood in the Old Testament. Hebrews 9, verse 9, says this, that this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gift and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. You see that? He says, the way they did it in the Old Testament, they did it because God prescribed it. But in all reality, it didn't clear anybody's conscience. They would come to church and they would, they would bring their little lamb or they would bring their dove and they would bring their sacrifice and the priest would go up there and he would put it on the altar and sacrifice it. Okay, your sins are pardoned. But they left feeling as bad as they came in. Because they knew like, well, I guess I'm good for another year. There was no sense of peace. There was no forgiveness. There was no freedom. There was no joy in that. But yet, the Bible tells us in the verse we're looking at that our hearts have been sprinkled. Not with some sacrificial animal's blood, but our hearts have been sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Aren't you glad that you can worship guilt-free today? As we were singing hallelujah to the Lord earlier. You know, the enemy wants to come in and just put condemnation on people. Who are you to sing that to God? Who are you to try to join the course with all these people? Your life is too messed up. You don't even need to be singing right now. You probably shouldn't even be in this church this morning. The Bible rebukes that thought in Jesus' name. Our conscience is cleared because we have a better covenant. And we can come into the house of God today. We can lift our voices together and we can worship. The psalmist asked this question. He said, who can ascend the hill of the Lord in reference to the presence of God? Who can get there? And then he answers his own question. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. Look at the verse again. Our hearts have been sprinkled to cleanse them from a guilty conscience. And, reading further, having our bodies washed with pure water. Our hands are clean. Our hearts are pure because of the work that Christ has done. And so in light of what he's done, let us reach up to God in worship. Let's reach up to God in worship. Secondly, today, we can reach inward in discipleship. That's why I love the church, because it affords us the opportunity To reach inward. Look at the next verse with me. Verse 23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly. How do do we keep from swerving off of the hope that we have? I'll tell you the way we keep from swerving off the hope that we have. We establish guardrails. The guardrails are the precepts and the principles of God's word. He establishes our foot on a firm foundation. The psalmist said, I walk in the path of your commands. Your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. The word of God becomes the guardrails. Have you ever gone bowling? 
um, with your kids and they put up the guardrails so that your ball couldn't fall in the gutter? Isn't that great? You get a high score. I like bowling with my, my daughters because, okay, actually I don't. I'm really competitive. And I don't need them. And they still get the points. But those guardrails offer grace. That, that we're going to miss it sometimes. But when we do, we still know it. But we aren't derailed by it. We, we bump up against something that's immovable. God's word is immovable. It's a firm foundation. The wise man builds his house on the rock. And the wind and the waves come. But the house stands. Why? Because it's built on a firm foundation. And so when we have the guardrails of God's word in our life, we grow. We begin to develop. The Bible tells us how. How to develop in Psalm chapter 1. The first Psalm says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, upon which he meditates day and night. That person, it says, talking about the person who delights in the law of the Lord, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, it prospers. That's what the word of God will do for your life. It will stabilize your life. Yesterday, I, I officiated a funeral service right here for Perry Scythe. He was not a member of our church, but someone that I'd gotten to know over the last couple of years. And I shared a scripture with the congregation that was gathered here yesterday out of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Here's what Paul said. To Timothy, he said, you then be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We can add strength. We can reach inward. We can get fortitude like a tree planted by the living water. See, there's a lot of people that they profess faith in Jesus Christ. Sounds good. I love the Lord. I'll be a believer. But then circumstances happen. They get a diagnosis, like the one that Perry got, of pancreatic cancer. And that first gale storm that hits the side of their reality shakes their faith to its foundation. And they don't know what to do. But then you have people like Perry, who doubled down on the hope that he had in Christ Jesus. He bought in wholeheartedly, to this hope. He grew in the grace and in the strength in Christ Jesus. That's what God's word wants to do in your life. It wants to give you strength. It wants to give you fortitude. That's why it's so important that you would take some time out of your weekend consistently to come to the house of God and say, God, speak to my heart. God, I'm going to open my Bible today. I'm going to get out my journal and a pen and I'm listening for you. I'm not just listening to the pastor to hear what's on his mind this week. I'm listening through his voice for your voice. Holy Spirit, speak to me today. Tell me the thing that I need to hear. And he will. He'll direct your life. He'll add strength. God's word reveals God's ways. And the more we get in the word, the more we focus in on, on discipleship, on learning the word of God, learning the, the character of God, the nature of God, 
all of a sudden, our, our perspective changes. We see things differently. We see things from a, a biblical lens. I, I shared yesterday uh, with the men in the morning. We had our men's breakfast, and, and we talked about uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God be for me, who can be against me? I love that verse. Anybody else love that verse? If God be for me, who can be against me? And, and we talked about just that one word, if. If. See, the more we committed to reaching inward in discipleship, Lord knows we have a lot of, of information coming at us. You've got a lot of things you can think about situations and scenarios and, and the circumstances that you're dealing with. But when we turn our gaze away from those things and we meditate on the law of God, we fix our eyes on what the Bible says, all of a sudden we begin to see it with a different lens. We say, if God is for me, who could be against me? Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is too hard for God. Faith is built as we dive in to the Word. I, I shared a story uh, with the guys yesterday, and uh, I, I just wanted to share it with everyone today because I just love this, this little story. When the first national championship uh, was being played for college football with, with the playoff format, it was Ohio State Buckeyes and, and the Oregon Ducks. And with those two teams uh, competing, Ohio had the, the better team, and, and they won the day. But Oregon had the better uniforms, as always, and they had the better commercial. I don't, I don't know if any of you saw it, but I want to read you the transcript from the commercial for the University of Oregon. It says, explore the power of if. Deep in the woods... If sparks a revolution, if searches and researches, if opens doors, goes for it on fourth down, if doesn't care about yesterday, just two simple letters, right? Wrong. If sleeps, never, and goes for extra credit. It all starts with if, because if becomes when, and when becomes now. And now becomes how, and how becomes wow. If will change your stance. If will change the game. If will change the world. We if at the University of Oregon. And I just want to tell you, we if at Wrightsville Assembly of God. We if. If God is for us, who can be against us? How do we get that concept? How do we get the? Is this self-help? Is this just blind optimism? Absolutely not. It's rooted and established in the promises and the precepts of God's word. We reach inward in discipleship. While all of our natural and human tendencies want, a, want to pull us to the road that's of ease and, and comfort. You know, disciple sounds a lot like the word discipline. But we lean into it. Because we are training our minds and, and training and disciplining ourselves to adhere to the commands of the Lord. I want to tell you, the church is a place where you can grow your faith. Corporate worship services are incubators for faith. It, it never surprises me when we see people for the first time in a corporate worship setting begin to sprout that first sapling of faith in Jesus. We see it happen all the time. 
It doesn't mean it's the first time they've ever heard the gospel. It doesn't mean that it's the first time they've considered how empty their life is or how much they, they need to change. All those things they thought about maybe a thousand times before, but they got here with you, with me, at church. And it became a greenhouse for faith to grow. And all of a sudden, faith comes alive in our hearts because they get in the right atmosphere. I I love the church because it's a place where faith can grow, where we can dive deeper and to know the truth of God's word. We got to reach upward to God in worship. We need to reach inward in discipleship. Quickly, let me give you a third one. We have to reach outward to others. Look at verse 24. Still in Hebrews 10, it says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Listen, we're called to glorify God, reaching upward. We're called to glory. But we're also called to grow, reaching inward in discipleship. But it doesn't stop there. We're also called to go. And so the Bible says, here's what the church does for each other. Spur one another on. In other words, motivate each other. Get each other Red Bull excited about reaching the lost. Go out and spur one another. That's what he's saying. Spur each other for what? Love and good deeds. And here's what I love about the church. I love the church because it challenges my self-centeredness. I mean, I'm not the only one that deals with it, I know, but it challenges me. I mean, truth be told, and I've heard people give me this excuse. I can go and worship on the golf course. I can talk to Jesus in a deer stand. I'm telling you what, a couple weeks ago, I was 5,000 feet elevation hiking a mountain. I felt close to God in a whole lot of ways. That was great. I loved it. But it was exactly what I wanted to do. And when I come to the house of God, it challenges my self-centeredness. See, the problem a lot of people have with understanding the value is the church is they're asking the question, what's the value for me? Wrong question. We don't just come to church for our benefit. We don't just come to church for our value. It's not what's in it for me it's what has god put in me to invest in the church and so we we're called to do good deeds to spur each other on listen you have a place and a purpose in the family of god one of my favorite scriptures in all the bible first peter chapter 4 verse 10 i love this verse first peter chapter 4 verse 10 it says every one of you or each one of you in this translation should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. I'll tell you why I love that verse. It tells me that the grace of God is demonstrated in a whole lot of ways, in its various forms. But it also says, each one of you use the gift that you receive. There's no room for an exception. It doesn't say, for those of you that received a gift, you should use it. No, it says everybody. You, you have a gift, every one of us. And our responsibility with that gift is to demonstrate the grace of God in its various forms. So the writer of Hebrews says, here's what the church does. We spur one another on to love and good deeds. 
love and good deeds. That's what we're called to do. You know, the, the Bible says in Matthew, Jesus said this. He said, let your light so shine before men that others will see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. That's a very practical evangelistic verse. A lot of times, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of the word evangelism, but a lot of people either, you know, think of like a street corner preacher, you know, somebody holding up a sign that says, turn or burn, you know, just like just an acoustic kind of confrontational and you go, yeah, that's not really me. I don't, I don't really do that. Or, or maybe you think of somebody, you know, with a nice suit that's very eloquent and, and comes in on the weekend and, and they preach at our church and then they go and they preach somewhere else at another church. You go, well, that's evangelism. That's what that guy does. But Jesus said very practically, let your light so shine so that others may see your good deeds. So evangelism is just doing something kind. This weekend, we're going to do something evangelistic. We're going to host an Easter egg hunt for our community. We're not going to put scriptures in the eggs. It says, repent. We're not going to tell everybody, come for the Easter egg hunt, come and enjoy this, and then bring them all in here and let me preach to them for an hour. No, we, we're, we're going we're to demonstrate our good deeds. We're going to let our light shine before them. We're going to love people. We're going to do something kind by blessing their kids, blessing their family. Those two bicycles that are sitting in the back of the sanctuary, next Sunday morning, we're going to give those away. We're going to give them away to two kids in our kids' church. For every kid that shows up next Sunday at church, their name's going to go in the bucket, and we're going to draw two names out. In fact, I'm going to kind of twist, uh, twist the arm a little bit on you parents. What we're wanting to do is for every friend that your kid brings, your kid's name will go in twice. So we just want to give kids the opportunity. Larry's bringing some kids to church next week. He's like, get me a bicycle, man. I'm going to get me a bicycle. Why? We, we, hopefully it's going to inspire some people to come to church and hear the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. But we want to bless people. We want to, and that's why I said last week, you know, I, I, I don't think I want them to hear me say this, you know, but I really don't want my kids to win it. Uh, I, I want somebody to win it that maybe isn't even a part of the church. Maybe somebody was like, okay, I'll go this Sunday. And then they come and go, Mom, they gave me a bicycle. I can imagine that parent's going to look like the kid's parents, you know, when he came back with the 12 basketfuls of fish and bread, like, hey, I heard Jesus speaking. Look at all these groceries. You know, just bless people. The Bible calls us to do that, to reach upward to God in worship, to reach inward in discipleship, to reach outward in evangelism. And there's one more thing that we need to do, and we'll close with this. We need to reach over in encouragement. I mean, you're just an arm's reach from some real needs. And you can't, you can't get this if you're not a part of the local church. You can log on. You can watch the greatest preachers in the world from your smartphone. You can, you can log on on your computer. There's services, live streaming everywhere right now. You could be anywhere else you want to be but right here. And you might have gotten a better sermon out of the whole deal. But right now, you're within arm's reach of encouragement. There's people that are journeying with you in the local church. There's people that are walking with you, that want to sorrow with you when you sorrow, that want to grieve 
over the loss of life like we did earlier today. And we want to rejoice with you when you're rejoicing. That's what it means to be a part of the family of God. We have the opportunity to do life together. And so this is what he says in verse 25. He says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. I I, I love my church because I'm encouraged by you. I really am. I'm encouraged by you. When when God comes through in your life and, and you give a testimony, like last this past week, Sister Nancy called with an incredible testimony, that encouraged my faith. Her testimony and it, it, it picked me up, it encouraged my faith, it made me want to pray harder for some of the other things that I haven't seen God do yet. But I'm also encouraged when 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 it feels like just Hell is breaking loose in your life and everything's just coming unglued and and yet you're here and you say, I lift my hands to believe again. And you begin to sing a song like we sang earlier and I see you and I know what you're going through. Man, that gives me a reason to praise God, to start counting my blessings. And I go, wow, that's encouraging. I love the church because you also encourage me when you actually encourage me. When you come up to me and build my faith. And let me tell you, everybody in the body of Christ can do that. We can do that. We can put a hand on somebody's back and just say, hey, I'm praying for you. Man, your worship blessed me today. Man, it's so good to, to see you uh, with your family here in church today. Just a word of encouragement. Is there, any, is there anything that I can, I can pray with you about? We have to reach over. A lot of people, they, they come into church. They go, you know, let's try this out. Let's, let's, let's go to church. And, and they come in like this. And they come into church and they sit down and they watch everybody do their thing. And they get back up and they go back out. They go, mm, I guess that preaching was okay. Don't base your decision on me. I mean, it's important what we're doing here, but this is just about this much of the pie. There's so many more things that the body of Christ does in the hearts and lives of the people of God. When we become a part of the body of Christ, when we don't isolate ourselves and stay closed off, but we open our hearts up completely to the Lord and to His church. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, Encourage one another. And build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So here's what we're going to do. I want to ask everybody to stand with me. As we get ready to end this service today. I don't know what needs you may have in your life. But you're within arm's reach of encouragement. And so I want to pray for you. I want to pray for the church today. And and as we do that, I just want to invite you. Maybe you just want to reach over and put a hand on somebody's shoulder. Or or, or take somebody by the hand that's close by. Just come in contact with with somebody. Just get get close to somebody. There's nobody sitting beside you. Just reach out and touch the person in front of you or, or behind you. You don't get that staying at home. We're the body of Christ. That means Jesus' hand is on you. Right now, the hand of Jesus 
And we follow a spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And sometimes we need substance, right? Is that a lack of faith to say? Sometimes we need substance. Well, I don't know about you, but Jesus hasn't shown up to me visibly. I haven't seen any blue clouds or any manifestations. But he does show up physically when a man of God walks up to me, puts his arms around me and says, Pastor, I believe in you. I feel Jesus in that moment. When somebody shows up and meets us at the hospital, holds our child, he says, let me, let me just take care of your baby for a little bit so you can take a nap. I went down to visit Chris last week in the hospital with his little baby, Gray, and when I got there, there was Ron and Heather. Chris was taking a nap. First time he slept in probably over 24 hours. That was Jesus in that moment. That's what it means. I, I love the church. Don't you love the church? You can't get this anywhere else.